Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Once again, I want to say greetings to each and every one of you and welcome to another round of Culturally Conscious Communications here on the LIB Radio Network. My name is Kitty Hobiawadu, a.k.a. The Conscious Rasta. And this is where we gather weekday mornings. We're on live from 6 to 8 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That is um, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I should say. And we're also with you live on Tuesday and Wednesday evening with more culturally conscious communications from nine from 7 to 9 p.m. on the West Coast. It's 10 to midnight on the East Coast. We gather to deal with culture, to deal with history, to deal with entertainment, economics, education, health, labor, law, politics, sex, religion, and war. All areas of human interactivity. Today's date is Wednesday, the 19th of November, the year 6,244, according to the calendar of the ancient Kemetans to which we have realigned our cultural clock. This is the 7th Millennium, and we are the 7th Millennium Academy of Consciousness. We've got a very good program for you this evening, a very informative program. I think you will be quite satisfied with the way the conversation is going to go and with our guests. This is his return visit to LIB Radio. We had the brother on just about one month ago, and I tell you, it was one of the most dynamic conversations, fast-paced conversations, and highly, highly informed conversations we've been able to have. Brother is an international. Um, he is a native of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and he's here, been residing in California for a number of years. He's also with the Congolese Association of Southern California. So let me, without any further delay, welcome Black to our airwaves this evening, our dear brother and comrade, Brother Saeed Kakese Dibinga. Welcome Black to LIB Radio, Brother Saeed. Okay, here, bear with me. Yes. Let me hit the right button. Okay, Brother Saeed, I'm sorry. I had to hit one more button. Welcome Black to LIB Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. It is a pleasure to have you back with us. The last time you were here, we were discussing really the whole complexity of the Congolese issue, and I personally think that this is a subject that people in Af- of African descent in this country are just really not very well informed about what could potentially be one of the greatest, wealthiest nations on this planet, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh-huh. First of all, um, let's deal with your own uh, personal background. You are a native citizen of the Congo. Yes, I am. Born in Kinshasa. I'm, I was born in Kinshasa. I'm from Minyam on my dad's side and Kasai Oriental on my mom's side. And you have, uh, of course, migrated to the United States. How long have you been living within the United States? Ooh, off and on, a little over 20 years. East and Coast and West Coast. East Coast and West Coast. And you've lived in um, other, other Western countries since you left uh, DRC? No, we spent some time in Europe and Belgium for a little while, but, you know, we kicked them out. We don't want to live there, so then we came to the United States. So I've been primarily here in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. How many um, of the Congolese who, that do emigrate, how many do you think uh, make their trip to Belgium might be their first uh, stop outside the DRC? I think uh, a good amount of them for two reasons. One, we're very familiar for obvious reasons with that culture, and two, it's, more, it's cheaper to get to, to uh, Europe than it is to come to America. And the immigration uh, policy to get into that country is a lot more, less stringent than the United States. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when one travels to Belgium, uh, do you see a significant um, proportion of the population are people from uh, Africa? Yes, a good proportion. I mean, France has, a, I believe, a larger share for obvious reasons. But Belgium, there's a lot of Africans there in Belgium. Mm-hmm. I had the mm-hmm. opportunity to travel to France three times. And, you know, I really just really kind of fell in love with Paris. And one of the things that I liked so much about Paris is that outside of um, 
the continent of Africa, I would imagine that Paris is probably the city where one can enrich themselves, engage in the deepest uh, amount of African cultural expression. Would you agree most with that? Definitely, most definitely, most definitely. I mean, just, I mean, you have the Nord, you have the Algerians, the Moroccans, you have the Congolese. I mean, the largest French-speaking population outside of France is in Congo. So, I mean, you, you can just interact with a, a myriad of cultures in Africa and France itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, when I got to Paris, I, I just fell in love. I, I, lo- I love the cuisine. I love being around my African sisters and brothers. I was actually staying with a... Uh, group of musicians from Cameroon, Uh-oh. Makosa musicians. All right, all right. And that was absolutely fantastic. But, uh, you know, Paris is a magnificent city. I trust that you have spent time there also? Yeah, I spent time there. Actually, when I was younger, when we were going back home, we would always stop in Paris. So I have a lot of memories of Paris from, you know, when I was my uh, younger days, as I would say. Mm-hmm. Good memories, good memories, good memories. Yeah, Paris was like a clean version of New York. Basically, you're right. <laughs> and, you know, fashion-wise, they were like London, you know, six months ahead of the United States. So if you went there and bought your gear, your clothes over there, you come back, you'd be ahead of everybody. So definitely like New York. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And one other point I'll make about Paris, well, actually, Paris is, I, I was filled with just a myriad of memories. One, I really appreciated their attitudes towards dining, food and the dinner hour. Mm-hmm. Right, so the dinner would take about two hours or so in Paris. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's an art over there. I mean, the difference, the difference between, between the Parisians and, we'll say, the London, if you want terms in terms of uh, distinction, is that uh, the British are more social elitist, social racist, if you want to say. They're more about the class system, mm-hmm. whereas the Parisians, France itself, they're more uh, cultural racist, if you want to use that word. They're more about the culture and your etiquette and, you know, your upbringing and things like that. So it's definitely... When you cook your meal in Paris, you know, it's an art. It's not just throwing it on the frying pan and calling it a day. Or throwing something down the choke tube as they do yeah. here in the States. <laughs> you get that French wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, dinner was nice. People, everyone would dress up for dinner. Mm-hmm. And it would take uh, take two hours. They'd serve it, just take the time, sit around the table and converse, have deep conversations. It was really a wonderful ritual. I also um, it really enjoyed Spain. You know, if I had to travel in Europe, but uh, I think my favorite journeys outside of the country undoubtedly had to be, had to be Jamaica. Ah, uh, Jamaica, what's the blonde boy? You know what I'm say? Why, what y'all deal with, man? Man, I think Ariana you know, respect that I and I and job most respect, most respect. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, it's a pleasure having you here, our br- beloved brother and comrade, Said. Now, um, uh, you are, of course, uh, on issues of Central Africa. You're probably one of the most well-informed persons that I've ever had the opportunity to interview. Thank you. Uh, what is your own background, and how is it that you've come to have such a, a profound perspective and insight as to what's occurring throughout the whole of Central Africa? Um, that's answering the second part. I'll say I have to you know, give it to my parents, Dr. Dabengawa Said and Dr. Engalela Wakabongo. And, you know, my elder is like, you know, I'm Musa. You know, I can never call by her official day. You know, uh, Amusa and Tonton, my uncle Cabango, San Diego. But basically, my parents, they made sure that not just myself, but my younger brothers and my siblings, you know, knew our culture, understood our culture, and appreciate our culture, and retain our culture in a place that doesn't really respect our culture. And when you have a, that kind of grounding in your, you know, upbringing, it's really hard to really sway from there. And only, you can only be proud of what you are. And they instilled in us, you know, a pride in where we came from. They didn't bend over backwards for nobody. And that's something that really had an impact on myself and my siblings. I mean, it's amazing when my younger brother, Ome Congo, who's actually in D.C. with his wife, uh, Kendra, who's probably listening now, went back home to Congo. I mean, for the first, he was born here, but he went there. He got so much love, but, you know, he felt like he was at home because that's how we were raised in our house. So that's why I think, I think my passion and my love for my country and my culture comes from definitely from my parents and through them from God and the ancestors. I think that's a very profound uh, acknowledgement of where culture is preserved within the family. Exactly. And it's um, fed by energies of concerned parents, grandparents, uncles, and aunties, as you would suggest. And, you know, uh, you have, I'm sure, uh, quite an insightful perspective on uh, your cousins here in the United States of America and, of course, the fact that we have been removed uh, many of us have been removed from Africa and our own cultural inheritance for as many as 18 generations. Yes, 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 and I think that's where I was talking to Brother Hal Green today about that very subject. You know, we're trying to 
close that gap and show there is a bridge between our community and the brothers and sisters here because what happens if you don't know, you know, it's like a boat. If you have the anchor for the boat hitting the bottom of the sea, you're not going to move anywhere. You're right there no matter what currents, what typhoon comes your way. But if there's no anchor that will hold you there, you'll go with the wind, you'll go with the water. You'll be, you will be and end up where the wind wants you to go. And unfortunately, that's um, a dilemma we're dealing with now, not just in you know, the United States, but also in Africa at large, being that they're being immersed and indulged with you know, Western images, and they think that life is better than the life they're living right now in their own culture. I do, do wholeheartedly agree that this uh, saturation of popular culture through mass media is one of the most damaging things that could ever be done. As um, I was preparing, setting up the studio for the program, I was checking out the evening news on PBS, and uh, one of their news features was the fact that the new full television season or new television season is featuring uh, across the sp- a broad spectrum, I believe, some 20 programs, uh, situation, comedy, series, etc., uh-huh. uh, that feature gay or homosexual themes and or characters and stores. Right, right. Why am I not surprised? The thing is that they can make a movie about talking dogs, but they can't make a movie, you know, about Sundiata, and there's something wrong with, you know, the Hollywood system. But at the same time, there's enough money for us to, you know, finance our own productions. But, you know, if we can go out to see a gladiator or, uh, you know, Commander of the Sea or Joan of Arc, then, you know, we, we have those stories in our own culture. So it's almost, a, it's almost a, you know, to our dismay that every year, as you say, you'll see, you know, more comedies, more things that aren't relevant to us, but yet we kind of pigeonhole ourselves because we don't look at our own rich history. Our history has influenced everybody, including Greek mythology, if you look at it. So there's a dismay if you look at the news, fall season coming. It's just pretty much just the same thing. Blacks are still in the comedies, and blacks are still on Tuesday night, and we're making money for the Tuesday night station, but not making money or progress for our own community. Uh-huh. Now, um, when we're talking about the preservation of culture uh-huh. and the critical necessity for that, can you just point to a couple of the things that did occur or some of the things that did occur within your own family that you could definitely attribute to um, your own ability to maintain a proper respect for your, your cultural inheritance? I'll say it's just simple, something as simple as, you know, our names and our family. I mean, one thing about the organization Leja Balela, which is an advocacy group, advocacy group for the Luba, Kasai, and Congo, and the diaspora at large, is that when we have our annual conference, and I remember we were told this, one of the young kids, he lives in, I believe, uh, Wisconsin or Vancouver or something like that. You know, his parents are back from back home. And when he came to the conference, the most touching thing he had said that stuck in our ears, that he said it was nice to be, a place, be in a place where there are kids like me. And another kid made a comment about how it's nice to be in a place where our names don't stand out. Our names alone kind of define us as it is. Saeed means my king, my lord, where I'm from. And, you know, people want to call me said, or they want to say said, said this, and, you know, joke about it and things like that. But I know I'm named after my dad's father. I know what my name means. I know what it means my culture. And your name defines you. My younger brother, Omekongo, Musao, Mwadi, Yanja, Shaumba, Simba. You know, people will make fun of our names. When Lion King came out, my younger brother Simba was having a hard time. But he's named after a king in our culture. So we have pride, you know, when you know, when you know what your name means, when you know there's a big pride and historical importance to you in your identity, right there, there's your culture, and pretty much everything else springs from that pride and who you are and how, how you identify. It makes a lot of sense. What about holidays and traditions uh, in your household? Did they combine the Western and or Congolese holidays and traditions? It was more, we'll say it was a little different because we kind of, we embrace Kwanzaa in that we like for what it stands for. I mean, with the name, you know, the Kuchishagalia and everything else, we already knew what it meant because that's everyday African society anyway. That's interwoven into our being in our society. But, you know, we'd have, you know, Thanksgiving, we'd get together. It wouldn't be, you know, Thanksgiving for, you know, when the pilgrims came here. It was more Thanksgiving for what we've accomplished as a family all year that we're still here, we're still healthy. The same with Kwanzaa, the principles we live every day, not just for seven days. So, but then again, we use that, we use that aspect to exchange gifts, you know, instead of Christmas for obvious reasons. So there's a lot of, a lot of things in our, in our culture, I would say in, our, in Congo particularly, our holidays are a little more observance of the family and less a materialistic thing. So it's more subtle because since our family is important every day, we celebrate our family every day. Mm-hmm. Well, that's your question. 
Yeah, very, very good series. Now, we're here to dis- discuss an event that's taking place this weekend, but I'm really just kind of getting a, a background so that our listening audience will understand just why I say that you have such a very profound insight. And this is, of course, a um, an accomplishment that we would will on every person of African descent, no matter where they find themselves, that they're well-grounded within their own culture, as well as to have a broad knowledge and perspective on events relative to the African condition. Let me ask you one more question on a personal tip. What about religion in your family? Um, were you exposed to Christianity throughout your upbringing? Oh, we were. Christianity, uh, Protestant, Presbyterian. My dad is a reverend. <laughs> we have uh, a lot of reverends and pastors in our family because during the days of colonialism, the only two avenues you had was, you know, through uh, medicine or religion, you know, through the missionary schools and things like that. So we were exposed to Christianity also, you know, plus since we had to do with the Arabs on the eastern part of Congo during the slave trade and trade overall, we had a lot of influence from the, um, the Muslims, the Arab traders. But the thing is that we weren't presented Christianity or, any, you know, we'll just say a foreign religion, you know, at face value. We were taught the meaning, the underlying, you know, thesis behind the presentation of what's being given to us. You know, what my mother explained to me in, the, in Catholicism is that it's really based on the Yoruba religion. You know, they will come to Africa, they'll take our religion, take it somewhere else, make it up, lighten it up, add a few more Hail Marys, and bring it back and say, here's your new religion. That's what I was playing, for, you know, too, for my mom. So for us, we always understood that, you know, as I believe there was a show called The Africans on some time ago, Dr. Ali Mosri. She said, we will celebrate Western religion, but we will always keep African religion and, and, and traditionalism in our back pocket just in case, because that will always be our foundation to fall out when nothing else is working for us. There are many people who uh, have come to believe and uh, cite their evidence for the case that religion, in particular Western versions of whatever religion, undermine our inherent, um, or excuse me, our inherent ability to stand alone, to see greatness in ourselves, and to be able to preserve the essential core of our own cultural legacy. Do yes, you- and I actually I can. The reason why is that if you look at all the images we celebrate in religion, they don't look like us. You know, and if you're worshiping or bowing down to something that doesn't look like you, you're, you know, you're, you're worshiping an image, you're, you're giving power to a foreign image. But what's happened, you're seeing a growth now in Africa where you're seeing more Africanism being interwoven into uh, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, what have you. And you've seen a lot of the more the traditional, like uh, the Kimbuanas in Congo, growing also because they retain their culture. If you go to the Caribbean or down to Cuba or Brazil, for a fact, like Bahia, all the religious images, and that's a heavily Catholic hemisphere in that area, are all dark-skinned. They're all black. So when you're bowing down and, and, and praying to someone that looks like you, it strengthens you because God appears in your image. It's not to say if it's a black image, it's better. It's just to say you're on an equal basis with God instead of looking something that doesn't look like you. That's what happened in Congo when a sister named Donna Patrice, long time ago, I think 1814, she took the Bible literally and said, I am in God's image, I'm, a, I'm the spokesperson for God. But the missionaries in, you know, near Kinshasa, our capital on the west, they were so terrified by the, by the potential of, of the uprising she could cause, they actually burned her alive. And they were so terrified of her that after they burned her alive and she died, they burned her again to make sure there was nothing left of the body to use that as a martyr. So that's the fear that Western people that bring religion have when they come to Africa, that we will re- recognize our strength in religion and grow from there. Christianity, Islam, you know, whoever follows those particular religions, I'm, you know, I follow Christianity. As long as the person maintains their identity and their culture, they won't go wrong. They can just enhance their religious belief. That's just my opinion. Okay, and that's a very, very um, eloquent way that you put that, Brother Saeed. Uh, Thank you. I must give you a full compliment on your ability to clarify these expressions and these ideas, especially to speak so clearly as someone who is the son of a preacher. Reverend <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Devengo, I say, I used to always go every day with him to theology school at the Divinity School at Harvard University. Every day I was there with him. Okay. And, uh, yeah, is your, uh, is your father still living? Yes, he is. Him and my mom are in Boston right now. He's a, he's a president of the Pan-African Council. Okay. All right, so uh, that is uh, really quite uh, quite impressive. Now, we're here to talk about an event that's taking place this weekend here in Metropolitan Los Angeles, um, the Congolese Genocide Memorial. Mm-hmm, yes, sir. Give some background on this event, please. 
Uh, the event is to honor the ancestors, the Connollys who have died during three separate genocides. We had King Leopold who, you know, though he never stepped one foot in Congo, he actually, you know, we were colonized by Belgium, as Malcolm X said. And I'll probably repeat this on Saturday, you know, because Plymouth Rock, you know, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. For us, we didn't land on Western civilization. Western civilization landed on us. And basically, we had 40 million Congolese at the time of King Leopold's colonialism period when the Europeans took power of Congo because he was so brutal, and that should really say something. He killed 10 million of us, 25% of the population. So we're going we're gonna to honor those 10 million that died under King Leopold in the first genocide. The second genocide is to honor in 1993, and actually happened for the second, I believe the third time, because it happened first in 1959 and 1960, is the Luba ethnic group that was um, genocided pretty much by Mobutu, during 1993, he wanted to remain in power, so what he did was he instigated the Katangans to turn against the Luba, you know, ethnic stripes again. So pretty much almost a half a million of them died as they were forced to go back to Kasai, a province that a lot of them had never been to. It was like some mythological place they never heard of. So we're going to honor them. And then the third genocide with a, with a side component is going to take place, that took place in uh, 1997-98 to 2003, when we were invaded by Rwanda, the Rwandan army, the Ugandan army, and to a lesser extent, the uh, Burundian army. And as a result of that civil war, we lost 5.5 million Congolese, you know, slaughtered, you know, killed, death from starvation, what have you. And then as a second, uh, an added component to that, we're going to add the inter-ethnic strife right now that's being flamed by the Ugandan government and the Rwandan government between the Hema and the Lendu that's taking place right now. So they've lost about 50,000 people already. So that's what the memorial is to honor. At first it was to honor the Civil War victims, but we felt as, at a suggestion of one of the planning committee, Mwadi Bukenge, that we should expand that to honor all those that have died in our country. And that's what's going to take place this Saturday. And that's the, the theme of the program. That event is taking place this Saturday. Can you give us uh, a date and time? Uh, and we'll also be giving that out later in the program. But uh, for those who are in metropolitan Los Angeles area or plan on being here this weekend, the uh, event is on Saturday, November 22nd. The location and specific time? Yeah, the location is going to be the Christ Citadel International Church, which is the place of Pastor Vincent Acosta, an outstanding pastor. It's going to be from 12 to 2 p.m. exactly, not African time, not color people's time, 12 to 2. And it's at 1122 South La Cienega Boulevard. That's north of Pico in Los Angeles. Okay, that's the Christ Citadel International Church. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, is this is, is this church that's led by an African uh, congregation? Yes, it is. The pastor is from Ghana. Okay, if he's Akan, so I'll have a nice little greeting for them also. Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, that's very very positive. Sounds like something that uh, all of us need to um, put on our calendar for this Saturday from. Uh, 11 until 2, or from 12 until 2 p.m. Yeah, it's from 12 to 2 p.m. It's free, it's a free admission, but we're definitely accepting donations to benefit the Street Girls program in Kinshasa. What it does is take all those girls, you know, the girls off the street and, you know, put them in school in a better environment so they can be more productive citizens, you know, in the country. So that's where all the contributions will be going to. And since both organizations, Leisure Valela and Christ Little International Church, uh, the funding, the donation source, actually, for Street Girls is, is, a, is a non-profit tax exempt. So donations are tax deductible, people. Come on down. Um, you know, it's our history. It's your history. Let's just honor our ancestors as we honor yours, because our ancestors are talking to your ancestors. I wholeheartedly agree. That is a so, so very uh, important that we build the bridges. Exactly. And that's the way that we properly honor our ancestors is by building those bridges with uh, amongst ourselves, our various uh, wings of these families. Can you just give us a brief description? What is life like for the average uh, inhabitant of Kinshasa these days? Hard. Well, you know, for the average, you know, we'll say the, reg the regular people, the main majority of the population, it's kind of hard right now. There's really no work there. Um, a lot of the money that's being flooded in there by the international people like uh, the United Nations, World Bank, and uh, Belgium, Paris, and London, and things like that, that money is going to the people that, you know, already have money. And, you know, it's going to the government, to guys that were looting and killing and put us in a situation in the first place. So, so for the average person, it's just very difficult. There's really no work. People are struggling to make it every day. Prostitution now is increasing. You have 11-year-old year old girls and sometimes boys out there prostituting themselves. It's just very difficult. It's not a bleak 
situation in terms of, you know, we have nothing. I mean, if you look at Kinshasa at night, as I said before, it looks like New York. But the problem is that, you know, the, it's, it's the very few are benefiting from that large amount that's coming in, and they seem to forget that if you're in a position to help people, then that's your responsibility to help people. So people are making it. We are still retaining our culture to keep us growing because what we're going through now is nothing compared to what my parents and our elders had to go through under the Belgians. And if they can make it through that, we'll come out of this alive also. And what about the uh, basic city services, uh, water, electricity, sanitation? Crumbling. Unfortunately, when you're next to the Congo River and getting clean water is a problem, that's to really show how bad it is. I mean, you know, civil servants, again, I came across a report from Kinshasa three days ago, haven't been paid for, you know, since September. And that's odd considering millions of dollars are coming into the country. So right now, the hospital services are, are really bad. We did a presentation at the marketplace where uh, Brother Kadima presented the uh, health, health structure, health zones in Congo. And they're pretty much, they really, they really need help, and they need to be made a priority and not a third or secondary thought in the whole overall development of Congo. So, you know, hopefully when people start realizing, look, if our country, if you're going to give the money, we need to build this, then I think we'll see an accelerated development of the infrastructure in Kinshasa and throughout the country. Where are the critical areas, uh, if we were to prioritize what needs to be done there, what are the critical areas that need reinforcement? Um, I would say there will be three components. I'll say the health system first because, you know, doctors have no money. And, you know, I mean, you have a lot of people like my aunt and a lot of our people back home are volunteering their time to work at the hospital. They're walking like four or five hours a day to get to the hospital just to help deliver the babies because if they don't do it, who's going to do it? So the healthcare system definitely has to be a priority because a healthy society is a productive society and a growth and a growing society. The second component, I think, would have to be the job sector, where a geological scandal, as we had mentioned before in your show, myself and Brother Fofo, who was there some time ago. And the thing is that these riches are not benefiting the country, but yet there's a high unemployment because what's happening is that we're used to dig up the minerals, but they process the minerals in another country and they sell them downtown Los Angeles at 100% inflation. So what we need to do is develop the job sector, and that ties into the economic component of flowing the money back into the country to develop the country so that we can elevate ourselves as a people. Third, I think for me, me personally, I think we really have to look at the armed forces condition in terms of having a strong military to defend the country. Not to invade anybody at large, but when Mobutu was in power, we trained the Rwandan army a long time ago. We trained the Burundian army and to a lesser extent the Ugandan army, but those two countries. And we helped liberate Angola. We helped them get the liberation from the Portuguese in 75. We need to have a strong nationalistic military to defend our territory so that people will think twice about invading us. And at the same time, there's pride in your military force. When you see you have strong Congolese men and women who are on the front line defending the country, it gives you a sense of pride that you see a lot of the Western people have in their own military. Again, I don't want to construct that to say we want to invade anybody, but we have to have a strong country because if we were strong with the military, we wouldn't be in this situation now. Very key, critical issue. Try to keep it short. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I um, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, your insight is just incredible. Uh, perhaps, Wendy, you have aspirations of returning to the Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, serving in some sort of uh, public sector activity? I would love to. I definitely would love to. It's my home, and I think I was blessed to be in this situation that I am right now to do what I can for my country back home because there are people that are not here. There are not people that are in Canada. There are Congolese that are not in Europe that, you know, can say anything, can see anything, or eat anything. So, you know, I always think about that. I always think about, you know, maybe some aspirations down the road in public service, what have you. But I think I'm doing that all, you know, I'm doing that right now in, you know, in helping with other Congolese such as Mwai Mukenge, Ome Congo Dabinga, and people, you know, brothers like Howard Green, bringing attention to our country of what's going on. I think that's my public service for at this moment. And the memorial is just one component at this time. Okay. We're going to talk more about the memorial. As we talk about, uh, we want to go into some more of the history and understand just the depth, the depth of the depravity that uh, was going on there under uh, Leopold, and of oh. course, it's even difficult to say that name, Leopold, without spitting. Yeah. But um, we're going to do, uh, I have a lot more of the conversation to go, and we're also going to invite our listeners to be part of this conversation. I want the listening audience to pose a question, a comment, 
or just maybe a word or two of support for our brother who's made a long journey, but he knows, as we all know, his journey is much, much further to go until we're bringing a sense of justice and fairness and equal distribution of wealth, hope, and all of the things that are necessary for all of the people of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to be able to fulfill their human mission. That's what we're here for at LIB Radio, is to put the spotlight on this brother so that our listening audience can embrace and support the brother as the brother has needs. So, Brother Saeed, we're going to take a very short break. Uh, you'll be black with us right after this short musical break. You're tuned in to the LIB Radio Network. Our email address, info at LIBRadio.com. Send us an email right now. Show a little love. We'll be right back with you on the LIB Radio Network.
We're here. We're live and we're direct. It's Wednesday evening. You're listening to the music from Amadi. Amadi out of uh, Broward County, Florida. And uh, let me tell you, it's just a fantastic album. The name of the album, Black Spark, White Fire, from Brother Amadi. And uh, Brother Amadi and is um, also available on the Internet in case anybody wants to show that brother some love. You can do so by going to docamadi.com. That's D-O-C-A-M-A-D-I.com. And show the brother some love. Speaking of showing love, we have on the telephone, telephone line very, very powerful brother a very knowledgeable brother. His name is uh, Brother Saeed Kages. And excuse me, let me get this this, this <laughs> middle name right. Don't don't wait wait. Be patient with me here. I'm just um, yeah. Kakese. Uh Dibinga. Yep. Dibinga. Yep. Welcome Black, my brother. I'm back. I'm I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Yeah. Well, you know, and uh, on the name thing, uh, it's it's very very. I'm sure you you've heard this no small amount of times. We as African people in this country have been away from home for so long that the sound of our own names is difficult to come off of our own tongues. And I think that's one of the ultimate identity crises that many of us can't even speak our own true name. Yeah, that's really something. But, you know, again, your name is who you are. A lot of times, you know, people just think, you know, I'm just named for no reason. But in our culture, your name defines your existence pretty much. My sister, I mean, your name is everything. I mean, you know, we don't take our, we have naming ceremonies, those things aren't just, you know, we don't take those situations lightly. Those are serious community events in our culture. So serious. Do you have children, Brother Saeed? No, I do not. Okay. <laughs> um, you're a young man, uh, what, your mid-30s? Nah, 40. Oh, okay. I have uh, good looking, so, you know, we don't age. Yeah, well, I, he- I heard that about you Africans, and uh, <laughs> that's why I decided I was going to be one of you Africans. <laughs> you already are, you know, from way back, you already are. And, you know, obviously, if you, you remember your roots, that's what got you to where you are right now and keeps you going. And what did Peter Tosh say? No matter where you come from, <laughs> if you are a black man or a black woman, you they, are an African. black woman, not respected, a household ruler, you know. I would. Now, uh... We were talking. We are talking about the Congolese Genocide Memorial that's taking place this Saturday, the 22nd of November, from 12 noon to 2 p.m. here in Metropolitan Los Angeles at Christ Citadel International Church. We highly recommend the listening audience put that on your calendar. We owe it to our family. We owe it to our ancestors to give honor where honor is called for. I mean, when the Europeans ask us to honor uh, fallen soldiers who have participated in America's genocidal warfare around the planet, far too many of us, far, far too many of us do that willingly without even questioning. Uh So now our beloved brother has come a long way to tell we, the Africans on this side, that we are still connected by that umbilical cord, which is that great continent. And so I invite the listening audience to show some love to our brother Saeed as, as you show in love to LIB Radio by honoring those who are our featured guests. Mm-hmm. We definitely want folks to come down. I mean, it's not, you know, we're going to have, uh, you know, speeches for the youth, Pastor Kasareka from the uh, African Community Christian Church. He'll be speaking there. You know, he's going to keep Congolese also. We're going to have Congolese youth speaking. We're going to have uh, Shakina Glory from Christ International is going to minister two songs. It's going to be, you know, going to be a visual presentation. Uh, Ms. Bukangi is putting together an awesome multimedia presentation. Mm-hmm. You know, Pastor Costa, who was so instrumental, you know, he's on the, on the planning committee also. He was so instrumental in getting us the, the facility and making himself available after, you know, almost a month of traveling. That's right. It's going to, we want people to come, not just to hear the singing and the, and the words and the speeches, but also see the, the um, display that we had the marketplace. That will be there also. That's going to show our you know, country in terms of health zones, uh, images, and all kinds of things. It's going to be a very cultural display, and hopefully our goal is that people will leave with a better understanding of our country and understand and, maybe, and think of a way that they can help us, you know, in terms of our situation back home. Have you ever found it to be true, and this is just a thought coming through my mind, that in many ways European people are more sympathetic and supportive of uh, African continental issues here in the United States than our African Americans, the so-called African American. Yeah, I find that you know, that's, it's, I find it to be true, and I think it's because of the guilt they feel for all the genocide they did to all of us. I mean, if you look at Algeria, Morocco, I mean, those folks up there, I mean, the French army slaughtered at will. 
So I think deep down below, I think the situation as you see the, uh, the American government or the American population feeling sorry for the Rwandan genocide in 1994 and bending over backwards to accommodate them, even though they're committing another genocide in Congo, is the same to the Europeans. I think deep down they feel guilty, you know, for what they've done to Africa, and they figure that they can atone by that guilt for now, by not being our spokesperson. But if they really want to atone for what they did, forgive the debt, say sorry, and invest a lot more money with no strings attached to develop the countries you almost fly to oblivion in the first place. Yeah, I do agree. That is a very good portion of their reparations process. Yeah, And we know this reparations process, it, it has taken 500 years of, gra of gross exploitation and genocide, uh, the worst crimes ever perpetuated against humili humanity. So uh, there's no way in the world we can presume that reparations can be made within a period of two, five, or even a decade or two. Exactly. I mean, people, I mean, I understand that there's a reparations movement and things like that, but I think coming back to what you asked previously, our brothers and sisters here have to understand where, you know, when, when they say they're African-American, they have to respect and, and embrace the African part of that title. And really, I mean, and if they can say, well, I don't know what country I'm from, we know somewhere down back in the day they came from that continent. And, you know, we really have to build these bridges. And if it just takes one person such as yourself, two people, our brain, then so be it. That's what it's going to take. But our brothers and sisters, if reparations, you know, that was over 500 years ago. And I'm not saying our brothers and sisters aren't old anything or what have you. But at the same time, there's a, there's a, there are genocides going on at will in the African diaspora. And I think if we put just an eighth or a tenth of the amount of energy into saying, I want my $100 because my great-great-great-great-grandfather was building, you know, was, was, you know, picking cotton in Alabama, I think they ought to look back. You know, if I paid $100 for this cell phone, and I know they wiped out a whole village back in Africa, particularly Congo, to get this mineral to help this phone work, I have an obligation to do something for the people that are dying from my leisure. You hit it right on the head. And, uh, you know, when... A person calls themselves an African-American, one might ask, well, with your African-American status, how much money, time, or uh, other type of resource investment did you make this past month in America uh -huh. compared to how much investment did you make during the past month in Africa? Right. Taxes. <laughs> the average income in Africa, in Congo, for example, is $60 per year. I know for a fact, my last check, that it was a lot more than that in taxes, and that's, you know, bi-weekly. I think if you're asking me personally, or if you're asking, are you asking me in terms of the community? Well, no, I'm asking the African-American mm -hmm. uh, who would call themselves and would claim uh, this dual heritage of African-America. Uh, how can you call yourself an African of any sorts, even a hyphenated African, if you make no investment in the motherland. Exactly, and that's, you know, I think it goes back to what you asked uh, several questions ago. That's almost, there's a little dismay in that because I have this conversation with Brother Howard Green about that. I've obviously, you know, ironically this very day. The thing is that I'm, I'm seeing more discussions just, you know, today on the, last month with Kobe Bryant. Today is Michael Jackson. Okay, those guys are multi-millionaires. They have their drama, they have their problems. I have yet to hear one mention about anything related to Africa in any group I've been around with in the last couple of days, what have you. If people want to invest, I think they need to invest in, in their culture, not just in buying drums and dashikis or whatever, or grand boo-boos. They have to invest in their culture. If they don't understand the culture they're investing in, find one of us and we can create that bridge like you're doing right now. Because someone in Florida, I know for a fact, is listening to your show. If you, you know, we know Western civilization, we know our own civilization. Our brothers and sisters here know their culture, but they don't really know our culture. Language barriers, distance, media images, and the history of the genocide of this country that they had to experience. But we have to build bridges. It can't be a one-way street where our brothers and sisters come to Africa and, you know, just to feel good, and then they come back and talk about how they were made, they were made a chief, you know, in northern Morocco. It's not about that. What images did they see? What situation did they find out that they can come back and tell other people about so that we can get the ball rolling? That's what they have. That's how they can invest. If they can't go to Congo, find a Congolese that's really about doing something for the country and make your resources available because we, we, we do remember those that help us out in our dark days. We do have a memory about that. That is a very good point. And when we're talking about the way that the investment in the Congo multiplies, 
if, uh, say, a person is maybe an immigrant from Congo, comes to this country, finishes their college education, and gets a, a good compatible job, many, quite often the person is going to be taking a proportion of their income and sending it directly to a family there in Congo. And one person's surplus over here might only be maybe 20% of your income or so can literally support an entire family in a place like the Congo. Isn't that true? Oh, definitely true. And unfortunately, then when we send the money back, you know, we're enriching Western Union. We, you know, we spend in fees alone $10 million of Western Union per month wiring money back to Congo. Now, say, you know, Saeed, Brother Kidi, Green, Wire Transfer Service had, could do something like that. You can see how that kind of income, just a portion, can benefit our communities. But that's what a lot of us are doing right now. We are take. It's not like we come here and you know all of us abandon our people back home. We're taking care of our families. We're taking care of our villages. You know, my family we sponsor a village in Yangwe, that's in Eastern Congo. That was the things we do. If we can't do something for the entire country, we try to do something for our village, for our city, for our immediate family. Conversely, though, the problem is that too many of our colonies back home, when they see the media images of America, think that you know we're not sending enough money when we send them a hundred dollars. They're like, you know, hey, where's the rest of it? Because they think we're over here, as the, as the rappers say, balling large on the street, you know, with diamonds and, you know, money in the ground. So even though a lot of us are helping our people back home, sometimes we get a little grief because they think we should be sending, we're holding back on a lot of money, and we don't want them to come here when we tell them the truth of what it's like to be in America. And, of course, uh, they don't really understand, well, I'm sure they could imagine, but not really fully understand the impact of having say an eight hundred to a thousand dollar a month uh, rent house rental yeah. uh, to car expenses transportation expenses running into hundreds of dollars per month uh, I mean it's uh, not easy living in hell and surviving it's not easy that's true but unfortunately that's not the image that's being exported into Africa through music videos and these uh, music magazines and stuff like that the image right now is that we all have money you know, Brother Keaty's in Bel Air, Saeed's in Beverly Hills, and, you know, Brother Hal Green is down there on uh, Marina Del Rey, living large and balling, as they say. Yeah, yeah, I hope. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah, and this, uh, we're going to have to interrupt this uh, malinformation system, uh, corporate-controlled media, so that we can, it's because it's going to make it easier for us to build the bridges. I want to go back into something you had mentioned earlier, and you talked about Leopold. Uh, Ken, I'm, I don't even want to call him King Leopold, mm-hmm. um, uh, because Leopold had to have been uh, Adolf Hitler's spiritual granddaddy. Oh, definitely. And there's another one by the name of Cecil Rhodes or Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes, yep. And when we're talking about evil incarnate, can you explain to our listening audience the depth of the depravity, the genocidal, murderous temperance of this vicious and vile historical character, Leopold. We are now in, in Belgian Congo. We are now walking through the villages of Kindu, or you know, the inhabitants of Kindu in eastern, in eastern Congo, that's in Manyama. And, you know, me and you are members of the Fourth Republic, the enforcers for King Leopold's uh, colonial system. And we both have two, both, we each have a gun. And right in front of us down the road is two Congolese. I take a shot, you take a shot. We both miss them. So we have to account for the two bullets. So me and you run, uh, we, me and you run ahead of them, set a trap, you catch one, I catch the other one. I get out a machete, you get out a machete, and we each take, I cut off the guy's hand, you take the other guy's hand. We come back to Kinshasa and say, hey, we shot two Congolese, here's your hands, it's a proof. That's how vicious it was. And sometimes it was hands, sometimes it was hands and feet. Age made no difference. If the girl was 11 years old, 3 years old, the foot was coming back with us. Every bullet that me and you fired as part of the Force Republic, we had to bring back proof that we killed the Congolese. <coughs> Whether we left them alive, bleeding to death in the road, we took a hand, we took a foot. There are photographs of that actually happened, you know, of the results of that. That's how bad it was. And it's ironic that when it came to Congo, the Europeans, nobody wanted Congo. They thought it was a wasteland. They thought there was nothing there. So Leopold was like, okay, well, I'll take that. And he somehow got the Western government to, you know, support his petition to the organizations to take over Congo. But it was so brutal. I mean, when you have, you picture, you picture 40 million people, 40 million, and you know the history of Western civilization. If they're saying that King Leopold was too brutal, that they had, they had to kick him out and take power from him, that should say something. You're so right. King Leopold... Uh, what were the years uh, that Leopold reigned over Congo? 
I believe, because the numbers tend to vary, it was up, I believe, up until 1872, 1875, if I believe correctly. Because some people, the document saying it's one set of years, and this document saying it's a different set of years. But we'll just say it was, it was a long time. It was a dark period. And it was thanks to a brother uh, from America who came over. He exposed uh, what was going on there that caused the downfall of Leopold, along with another Congolese whose name escapes me right now, who also reported what was going on. Once he was able to get out of Congo with the missionaries, he started advocating on behalf of the country people, which is what we should be doing now. Mm-hmm. It was brutal. I mean, you want to talk about the Jewish Holocaust. I mean, we're talking brutality where they would take life and say, look, Brother Keedy, either you go down there and work in that field or we're killing her. That's how bad it was. And they would take whole families. In fact, when it came down to doing lodging, Instead of cutting down the forest to get a clear area, they would find a village and kill everybody because the village was already flat and wide open space. That's how brutal it was for us, killing wholesale. And uh, that is just uh, just amazing. Uh, the, the bloodletting that conquered the United States was, of course, quite similar. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, in the United States, one of the things that they were able to do that was not so successful in Africa was to create disease epidemics over here that wiped out the indigenous people. Right, right, right. And we do know that uh, the Africans, being the original people on the face of the earth, have had much more chance to adapt biological, biologically to uh, any natural occurring disease organisms. Oh, yes, exactly, exactly. That's so true. Their, 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 you know, their disease was just outright warfare. I mean, they didn't bother. They were like, you know, we'll just kill wholesale and call it a day. They didn't want to wait. They said, we want the land. It was the Portuguese, the Dutch, the British, the Portuguese, whoever. They, were, they, weren't about, they, weren't, they weren't about waiting 200 years to let, you know, measles or smallpox wipe off the Africans. They said, you know, I got a gun. Either I'll get or I'll get another African to use it on them. We'll just do it that way, and you see what happens now. Yeah, it's unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. So... The bloodletting uh, 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 under Leopold, the maiming, the massacres, etc. When was this brought to an end? The Europeans, and again, if, if people know the history of Western civilization when it comes to brutality, the Europeans were so outraged by the brutality of King Leopold. They, the Belgians, they, they petitioned the Belgians to take power from him. It wasn't the king anymore. It became we became a, a, we were colonized by Belgium, not just an individual. That's why, you know, it became the Belgian Congo or the Belgian Free State. Initially, we were under literally one guy, King Leopold. He was the administrator for Congo. But the Belgian government, they were just so traumatized by what they saw him doing. And that should really tell you something. They took power from him. It's almost such as Mussolini in World War II, how the Italians had sided with Nazi Germany. And what happened is that the, the, the president of Italy said, you know, we're not going to deal with the Nazis anymore and trying to deal with the West with the allies. And he called in Mussolini and, you know, fired him from the position and had him arrested and thrown in jail. That's how the Europeans were. That's how the Belgians were. And that's how we ended. That's how Leopold's reign came to an end. Yeah. And uh, for those who need to know more about that, do definitely go onto the web. Pull up your Google search or and um, read some part of it. I know there is this famous document by Mark Twain, uh, which is entitled King Lillipold's Soliloquy, A Defense of His Congo Rule. Yeah, it is. There's so much material out there on what he's done, and the thing that kind of hurts me the most, and I really want to talk to my elders about this, is that there's a movie uh, called Peace the Adente, an awesome movie that talks about, you know, uh, retaining your culture, and it involves a Congolese going to, a Congolese king of the, uh, I believe, the Luba, going to Europe to find his daughter. And he's, it's interwoven with archival footage from the days of independence, you know, when uh, King Bowden came to, uh, to uh, Kishada and met Shombe and Lumumba and those people, what have you. But it also shows what's kind of is interesting. It shows the Congolese in Europe actually going down to King Leopold's statue of him on a horse with wreaths and placing them in honor of him. Now, maybe it's just me, <laughs> but... If this guy killed a quarter of my population, I'm not carrying wreaths to the statue. So sometimes, you know, we, we, sometimes, you know, we have to, we, we try to understand our dynamics from that period. But I didn't grow up under Leopold. I know my parents did. So I know they, so I know my rage towards him is nothing compared to what their rage or other elders' rage is towards him.
And uh, does that rage uh, still persist against Belgian people themselves, or maybe the Belgian military or Belgian government? No, I think I think on the local level, the people who know the history, the people that can go under Mobutu, the people that retain their culture, I think that anger is still there. It's not like you know, get the gun and shoot everybody, but there is, I say, a simmering dislike for that whole situation because again they had to live it it's one thing about the people that lived during slavery it's another thing you know it's another thing for people one thing for people to say i want reparations today in 2003 that's not the same as the person that had to live during slavery back in the day in the cotton fields so i think for my generation we grew up a little bit after that but for our parents i know there's a strong dislike and many Congolese did not want to go to belgium after we got our independence they said we why do you want to go live in the house of the people that just enslaved us. So a lot of them got sponsorship to come to America. So, but I think for the youthful generation, unfortunately, I don't think, I think it's almost like our brothers and sisters here. They don't really understand what the civil rights movement meant. meant. They, didn't, they didn't grow up in that era. They didn't grow up during those times. So I don't think they really understand what the struggle really meant when they could lynch you at will any time when they felt like it and get off, but they're not guilty, please. That's right. And you, of course, are aware that in recent years the process of uh, the practice of mutilating victims of warfare, innocent children and citizens, has once again uh, become popularized in certain struggles in Western Africa. Yes, it has, because you're seeing almost you, you, you're seeing low-level conflict in that. I don't have a B-52, I don't have a Cobra helicopter, I don't have, like, you know, an F-16, but I got a machete and five machine guns and 15 guys ready to use them. So what we do is we basically just terrorize the local population, and if we can't get the country, we just take the area that, we're, you know, we're in right now. If I can't get Kinshasa, I'll do what the Rwandans did. I'll just take Goma and Bukavu and just kill at will just to get the minerals. That's what's happening now. Very, very serious. You had talked also about a second massacre that occurred while Mobutu was in power there. Oh, yes. What happened is uh, back in the day, you know, you had the ethnic group in Kasai. Kasai was one province, and then Mobutu was, you know, jolted to reality when um, a lot of Congolese in that province, such as Albert Malopwe, Kolonji, and those, and those guys, those ladies and gentlemen, you know, they fought for independence because a lot of people forget that it wasn't just Katanga that wanted to secede from Congo. It was Kasai also. The attitude was, look, if Katanga can secede from Congo, we can do the same thing. So Mobutu remember that experience, and that's why he divided Kasai into Kasai Oriental and Kasai Occidental, so that there wouldn't be one movement again. So you had Bujimai in Kasai Oriental, and you had Kananga in Kasai Occidental, a little southern, a little lower. What happened is that when the Belgians left, they went down to the province of, uh, in the Shaba area, or Katanga, and said, look, when we leave, the Luba ethnic group is going to take power. You guys are done. Keep that in mind. And they festered that. They festered that, and they festered that, and they festered that, which created animosity towards the Luba, who never, who never really bothered anybody. So that, that, that animosity has always been there. People may call it hating or something like that. The Luba ethnic group was very well educated. They had a very high um, education level in their province. They, were, they didn't go around, or we didn't go around saying we were better than anybody. What happened was that in 1993, after the National Conference in Kinshasa, where uh, Chester Katie was elected prime minister by a, a 2,000 membership in parliament, Mobutu again did the same thing that Belgians did. He went down, he called the people in Katanga, Mobutu from Ecuador, on the northwestern part of Congo. He instigated the people in Katanga to again turn on the Lubas, saying, look, now the Luba is prime minister. He wants to take power. He wants to, you know, he wants to take power, and once he takes power, he's going to take all the Lubas, all the Lubas are going to be in power, and they're going to enslave you. That's the, the, the nonsense he was feeding to the people in Katanga. And unfortunately, not all the, not the all Katanganese or the people in Shadow Province, enough of them believed what he was saying, and you had people who were friends for 15 years, one Luba, one from Katanga, you had the Katanga turning on the Luba. And the saying was, and I remember my aunt telling me, they telling us this at, our conference, at the Leisure Belayla conference last year. The, the, the motto for the Katangans that were turning against the Luba was, if a snake goes by, let it live. If a Luba goes by, kill him. That's mm -hmm. how bad it was. And what happened, the Katangans said, get out of Katanga, go back to Kasai. A lot of those Lubas, were, they, they were born and grew up in Katanga. They didn't know anything about Kasai, but they were forced to leave literally with the clothes on their back. A lot of them didn't make it. A lot of them waited for this one train, picture the metro, and that's all you have for L.A., 
They're waiting for that one train to bring them back to Kasai. And a lot of times, many died trying to get to the train. Many died waiting for the train that never showed up. And we're actually going to highlight that during the Congolese Memorial. So what happened, we're talking about almost half a million died. Half a million got displaced because of we trying to retain power instead of going with the flow of democracy reform in Congo. That was the, that was the second genocide. But it happened before, back in 5960. We are going to take a short uh, break. We are top of the hour. We've got another hour to go in this discussion with our brother. And our brother, Saeed Kakesi Dibinga, is here with us sharing information on uh, the history, the complex history of the Congo, as well as uh, letting us know about a tribute that's going to be... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.